Well, I don't know what else is going on in our church life this week, but I know we've grown by one person today because Andrew and Janet Horton had their baby last night. So we're very thankful that Caroline Ann has safely arrived, uh, seven pounds, nine ounces, 21 inches long, and that's Ann with an E to those of you who care about that. So very thankful uh, mom and baby are doing well, and um, Andrew and Janet, thankful for them, and excited to have another uh, little one here in our church. Let's go to God together now in prayer. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, our living hope, and I thank you for the gift of life, and we know that every time a life comes into the world, it's a gift from you, and so we thank you for uh, the birth of Caroline Ann. God, I pray for Andrew and Janet. Give them strength as they will no doubt uh, be weary and worn out. God, we thank you for protecting uh, Janet and the baby. And God, I ask that she would grow to know and love you and have a heart that longs to uh, worship you and tell others about you. God, we ask for us as a congregation that you would help us walk by your spirit, that the fruit of the spirit would be clear among us, love, joy, peace, peace and patience and kindness. And God, that we would walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling in Christ, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. God, thank you for our brothers and sisters at Seacoast Church. I pray for that congregation, for their congregations, that they would preach the gospel faithfully, and I pray for Pastor Josh as he leads them that they would help people truly find Christ and spread your word to those who don't know it. We ask as well this morning for Chief Justice Roberts. God, I pray that you would make him a man who loves justice as you have defined it in your word and that he would execute justice wisely. I do pray for peace and resolution and wisdom as it regards the, the confirmation of uh, Justice Kavanaugh or uh, Judge Kavanaugh, God, that you would give wisdom to those who are leading in that process. We think of those who don't know you this morning, and particularly those who are in sub-Saharan Africa. God, people who have never heard the name of Christ because there is no one there to tell them. God, I pray that you would raise up laborers for the harvest, and that you would open eyes to Christ. We bring before you this morning our member, Libby Armstrong. God, she's no longer able to be active and present here in the way that she once was, but God, I pray that you would encourage her in her walk with Christ. Preserve her when she is weak, and I pray that uh, she would know your strength when she feels her physical weakness. And now, as we come to your word, help us trust that you are working and ruling in all things. Help us see that your big cosmic plan is good, even when it doesn't make sense to us today. And for those here who are struggling in their faith, God, I ask that you would help them see your goodness. And I pray all of this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2 will begin, continue our series and sing Jesus the King in the book of Matthew and see this morning that God preserves the King, the preservation of the King in verses 13 through 23, verses 13 through 23. So I'll read these aloud and then we'll uh, jump into them together. Matthew 2 verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about the search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious 
And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This morning, as we work through this passage together, we're going to see how God ensures the triumph of Jesus as king. God ensures the triumph of Jesus as king. Well, you may remember from a couple of weeks ago that the particular Herod in this passage is Herod the Great. There are a number of Herods in the New Testament. This is Herod the Great, and it's right at the tail end of his rule. He's ruled for about 36 years at this point. He's getting up in years. His, fa- uh, his health is failing, but it hasn't made him any less cantankerous. He's still an angry, cruel, paranoid ruler. He's done everything he can to stave off death. He knows he's going to die, but he's trying to hold it off with everything in him. In fact, he's made it a practice by this point in his life to winter in Jericho. Now, you know Jericho, perhaps, from the Old Testament. Joshua fits the battle of Jericho. This is the same city, but the reason he goes there is not kind of as a monument to what happened there with Joshua and the walls coming and tumbling down, but he goes there because Jericho is essentially the, uh, the Jewish Florida. It's a place where it never gets cold, and so you could winter there. It's 1,200 feet below sea level, and so it's the only place he could go and be comfortable in the winter. And so he's done everything he can to stave off death. He's ruled a long time, but he's not a popular guy. But by this time, he's killed a lot of people. I mean, his favorite wife, his mother-in-law, a few sons, cousins, uncles. In fact, he became somewhat notorious because uh, the high priest fell out of favor with Herod. And the high priest actually was his wife's sister. So this is his brother-in-law, and he goes swimming in a pool one day, and he's found dead there. Well, Herod had him drowned because he was concerned about the high priest. Herod is paranoid. He's taking out anyone at all who feels like they could be any sort of a a threat to him. Well, when you're this kind of ruler, you're well-known, you've lived a long time, but you've killed a lot of people, you're not exactly a popular guy. Well, Herod knows that death is approaching, and as his death approaches, he realizes what's going to happen. When Herod dies, Israel is going to party. They're going to celebrate because this cruel king is dead. In anticipation of this, Herod was so sadistic that he actually went and he rounded up a bunch of Jewish leaders and he locked them in a cell. When asked why he did this, he said because he wanted Israel to mourn on the day he died. So the very day he died, he ordered that these leaders would be executed. People wouldn't be mourning his death, but they would be mourning nonetheless. He wanted people to be weeping on the day that he died. Well, it's in this context At this tail end of his reign, he's so paranoid, so cruel, that the wise men show up and they say, where is the king, the new king who has been born? Well, you can imagine this is not good news to Herod. 
he has, at the height of his cruelty, at the height of his paranoia, he's kind of losing a grip on his power and doing everything he can to hold on to it. And so it's here that we come to Matthew chapter 2, and what happens is the angel of the Lord, who's very busy in Matthew chapter 2, shows up again. And you see here on this map, if you look in the upper right corner, kind of a little bit down from the top there, you see the town of Bethlehem. So Joseph and his family have traveled from their hometown of Nazareth, the far north, to Bethlehem for the child to be born. Jesus, by this time, is somewhere between 6 and 20 months old. And the angel, the messenger from the Lord, appears to them and says, leave and flee to Egypt. So they travel to the southeast, some 200 plus miles, and they're in Egypt now. After this, they're going to return also in this same passage, but they're going to return past Bethlehem all the way to the far north, back to the town of Nazareth, where Jesus will be raised. So this brings us, this journey brings us to the passage, and we're going to see a few things here is, one, that danger leads Joseph and his family to flee to Egypt. Danger leads them to Egypt. Well, the wise men are warned in a dream, and now Joseph receives a similar warning. Go from Israel to Egypt, and then he says very clearly, remain there until I tell you. So the angel's very clear with Joseph, don't come back until it's safe. It's not safe to return. This isn't just a kind of a temporary departure. This is going to be a long-term relocation for the safety of your family. We don't really know exactly what Herod was like, other than kind of these historical descriptions, some of which I've shared with you. But I sort of imagine Herod as a little bit like um, if you've seen, I don't know, any detective shows or Clear and Present Danger, Jack Ryan or something like this, but a Colombian drug lord from the 80s or 90s. So someone who could be very tender and affectionate with those close to them, but who could snap in an instant and just kill the people that they love most. And so it's the kind of person that you never really felt safe around. The thing with paranoid people is they don't experience fear like ordinary people experience fear. We all, we all have fears. We all have different fears relative to one another. Some of you fear spiders, and some of you fear snakes, and some of you fear darkness, some of you fear being alone, some of you fear being with people. But paranoid people are a little bit different in that they fixate on their fear. They hold on to it in a way that it becomes all-consuming for them. And the thing that Herod fears is being supplanted, being replaced. He fears what's coming, death, because it ensures that the thing that he fears will happen to him. Paranoid people fixate and can't let it go, and that's what happens with Herod. Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. I mean, Herod has feared his entire life that this will happen. And now he's heard that the king is here. And so he tells the wise men, hey, let, it, let, let me know so I can go worship the child. He's not going to let it go. Now, the wise men have done their part. God warned them. They said, Herod's not being honest with you. He's going to kill the child. So they left another way. But Herod still won't let it go. He doesn't know exactly where the child is, but he knows from the prophets that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Well, we see over and over throughout this passage, the child the child, the child, the child, sometimes the child and his mother. And the point is this. The center of this story is God's preserving the life of the child, Jesus Christ. We've seen already that Joseph was a man of faith and courage because if you remember, when he married Mary, she was a pregnant teenager. When he married Mary, not only did he take her on as wife, he also then assumed to himself the shame of her pregnancy the public shame and all that that meant. So we know Joseph is a man of faith and courage, and we see that again, his proactive 
faith in verse 14, he rises and takes the child and his mother and departs to Egypt and remains there until the death of Herod. One thing we've seen over and over here in these first chapters of Matthew is this prophecy of cycle and fulfill, uh, the, the cycle of prophecy and fulfillment. There's a prophecy and there's a fulfillment, and there's another one here. So he goes to Egypt, and we see here in the text that this was to happen to fulfill what was written by the prophet, that he would out, be called out of Egypt. This prophecy is in Hosea 11.1. 1. But if you flipped back in your Bible and looked at the book of Hosea, what you'd find is actually a little bit different than what's here. Out of Egypt, I called my son. That's there, but it's a reference to someone else. So here he's referencing Jesus, the child. But in Hosea 1, the text reads, When Israel was a child, out of Egypt, I called my son. So now Matthew takes that applied to Israel, and he applies it to Jesus. So what is going on here? Is Matthew kind of missing the boat? What's happened is Matthew is making a point is that Jesus is the new and better Israel. So what we have in the Old Testament is a pattern of what's going to come in the New Testament. So in Exodus chapter 4, what we see is that Pharaoh must let Israel go from Egypt because Israel is the Lord's firstborn son. Now we get to the New Testament, we see that Jesus Christ is God's unique son, the one, the only begotten son of God, the true and better child, God in human flesh. If you go back to the Exodus, you see Israel wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their sin. We come here to the New Testament in the life of Christ. Matthew 4 will teach us that Jesus endures temptation for 40 days in the wilderness and yet never sins, never yields to temptation. In Isaiah chapter 5, Israel is a vineyard destroyed because they don't bring forth any good fruit. And yet in John 15, Jesus tells us, I am the true vine. If you would bring forth any fruit at all, you must stay connected to me in every way. The prophets indicate that Jesus, one better, is coming. And now Matthew tells you, the true Son of God is here. As we move from Adam to Moses to David to Christ... What all the Bible is revealing to us is this, that all revelation points to Jesus Christ until we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where Paul tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, was not yes and no, but with him it is always yes, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. So think about it this way. If you are a Jew and you're studying the history of Israel and you come to the hero, the king, David. With David, it's not always yes, it's yes and no. Is there, are there parts of David that are a fulfillment of what God intends? Yes. Is David a powerful king? Yes. Does he lead God's people well? Yes. Is he a man after God's own heart? Yes. But is David a failure in many senses? Yes. David is a notorious murderer. He's a thief. He's an adulterer. He's taken someone else's wife. He's lied about it, and then he's killed someone to cover up his sin. David is yes and no. But when we get to Jesus, all of the promises of God find their fulfillment in him. It's always yes with him. There's never a no. There's never a failure. He perfectly fulfills the law of God, perfectly fulfills the patterns, the predictions that that God has pointed to, the coming Messiah, the one who will fulfill all righteousness. This is the first time that Matthew makes a reference to Jesus as God's son. But it's not the last. The true son of God is here. 
the one who perfectly succeeds in all the ways that Israel failed. And you know, it's not just Israel that needs this deliverer. We're just like that, aren't we? Only with me, often it's a lot more no than yes. I mean, I'd like to say that I'm as good as David, but I don't know that I am. Sure, I've never killed anyone, but Jesus comes and he says that if you've ever hated someone in your heart, guilty of murder. If you've ever looked at a woman with lustful intent, you're guilty of adultery. We all stand justly condemned before the law of God, and we all need a better, true son who can fulfill the will of the Father. And the Bible tells us that person is Jesus Christ. And the only hope for any of us, the only hope for historic Israel, the only hope for us today is the Son of God, Jesus. And so if you're here and you don't know God through faith in Jesus Christ, would you turn from your sin? Would you turn from your efforts of self-fulfillment, of self-justification, and trust Jesus to rescue you today? We've seen the danger in the flight to Egypt, and now we're going to see the horrible slaughter that Herod brings about. Well, verse 15 tells us about Herod's death, but in real time, actually in the story, he hasn't died yet. So Matthew's telling the story later. He's looking back, and he tells us about a time between then when Herod died, but he's not dead yet. Verses 16 to 18, he's very much alive. Herod is, uh, is Herod, 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 Herod is paranoid. You could make some sort of poem out of that, but he's a paranoid king. And so when he hears that the wise men have tricked him, Matthew tells us he is furious. He is incensed. He's sitting back in Jerusalem and his resentment is building and building and building to the point where he says, all right, if I can't find that child, I'm going to kill them all. And so he sends out his soldiers to kill all of the male children, the baby boys in the region of Bethlehem. Well, we know about Herod that he's known for killing people. And in the list of Herod's crimes, this probably isn't even the greatest crime. And for his soldiers who do his bidding, this is a rather quick day's work. Bethlehem and Jerusalem are just five miles apart. They're very close together. So Herod expected to hear back quickly from these wise men, and they don't return at all. And so now he sends his soldiers to the order to kill all these boys. You remember that Jesus is between 6 and 20 months old, and so Herod doesn't know exactly when Jesus was born, so he wants to make sure that he, he, he gets them. So anyone under the age of 3, they're dead. My son, some of your sons and grandsons, kills them all. Well, Bethlehem is a small town. There are probably 1,500 or so people in that town uh, around this time and in the region around, and historians estimate that there are somewhere between 25 and 30 children in this age bracket under the age of two. If we cut that in half, then we have between 12 and 15 boys that are killed in this day. I mean, you can imagine how that would devastate a town like this, a town where no doubt everyone knows each other, knows everyone's names, where everyone is related to everyone else. And on this day, their babies dies. It's an absolutely heinous crime. Well, Matthew again emphasizes prophecy and fulfillment. He references Jeremiah 31. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted. I mean, you can imagine what this moment is like. I mean, probably uh, we've all had these moments as husbands or dads when you're trying to offer comfort and uh, you just don't know the right words to say. You just kind of do the pat on the back. Honey, I love you and I'm sorry. And 
One of those moments is no doubt when your baby is ripped from your arms and killed before you're there, there's not There's not comfort for a moment like this. There's, not sad, there's just not earthly healing for a wound like that. And these are wounds, no doubt, that these mothers, fathers, siblings bear for the rest of their lives. These babies as they're slaughtered. Well, there's a little bit of a problem here. Because as we've seen, it's so comforting and encouraging to see the way that Scripture fulfills Scripture. That God progressively reveals to us the story of redemption. But here's a prophecy that's a, it's a pretty difficult one. You know, it's, it's great to hear about a prophecy of a coming king who will deliver his people, but a prophecy about the weeping of God's children because their babies are killed, that is difficult. And we've said this is the preservation of the king. God preserves Jesus, but what about these babies? Why didn't he warn all of these people? God predicted the weeping of these mothers. He knew this was going to happen. And the complete fulfillment of this prophecy means that the children are killed. I mean, think about it. If you are one of the parents there, this means that your child dies. Imagine that the name of your child is one of the children slaughtered. Why didn't God tell all the families to flee? Well, we've embarked here on a question that's very difficult to answer. In fact, we could take the next several Sundays and try to answer it, and probably couldn't answer it fully and satisfactorily. But consider this for a moment. At the fall, when Adam and Eve sinned, there was an individual instance of sin. They ate of the tree, broke God's law, but when they did this, they introduced into the world cosmic brokenness, big brokenness. And so what we have in our lives isn't just an individual problem, it's a cosmic problem, a, co- a problem too big for one person to solve. And so all of these little individual griefs, tragedies, brokennesses are evidence of the bigger brokenness, of the bigger problem. Whether it's the reckless slaughter of babies in Bethlehem or whether it's a slaughter of millions in slaughterhouses posing as medical clinics in our country today, we have cosmic brokenness in the world. And the point here is that no individual solution can solve this. We need a big Savior, a cosmic Savior, one who can redeem not just me from my problems, but all of us from all of our brokenness. You see, these 12 to 15 children, for these people, it is no doubt heartbreaking and grief-inducing. But it's an evidence of the fact that our world is broken, and apart from a Redeemer, we have no hope. So why is it that God would do this? I think, in part, God allows us to experience pain and heartache to demonstrate to us how much we need a Savior. You see, apart from pain, we don't know our need Apart from a hungry stomach, we don't need, know our need to eat. Apart from a, a thirsty throat, a dry throat, we don't need, know our need for water. And like that, our need, our pain, our brokenness reveals to us our need of a Savior. Our need of the fact that we need someone to fix things that we cannot fix. Our brokenness is too big. Our pain is too great. We cannot release ourselves from the slavery, the bondage that we're in. The reason that grace is amazing is because there are chains that we cannot break and we sing amazing, cha- amazing grace, my chains are gone because Jesus is the only one that can deliver us from the prison house of our sin, from the prison of the brokenness of this world. 
but it's also a reminder of the infinite value of Christ in relation to everything else. See, we deal with temporary pain and we ask it this way. God, how could you let me experience this? God, how could you allow my child to turn his back on me that way? God, how could you allow my spouse to do this? How could you allow my spouse to leave? How could you take my spouse? How could my spouse be dead, gone? God, how could you take this child from me? And we ask, God, how could you? God, how could you? God, how could you? And I love this because this prophecy is from Jeremiah 31. And if you know your Bible at all, there's actually a more famous prophecy at the end of Jeremiah 31. So at the beginning of 31, you have this prophecy of weeping. God's people will experience pain. But in the same passage, there is a prophecy of a new covenant. A new covenant through a coming Redeemer. And God will write his law, not in a book, not in stone, but on our hearts. And he will redeem his people fully and finally And the promise at the end of this covenant is that he will remember their sins no more. The same prophecy of pain results in the end of the prophecy of deliverance. It's kind of like the pattern of history. Jesus will come and deliver us from cosmic brokenness. He will come and end all our pain, and he predicts this, but it's just not yet. It's Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Oh, brothers and sisters, that day is coming, but it is not here yet. Look for that day. Our Savior is returning. He's going to deliver us fully and finally from every pain that we experience. Not just the pain of today, but the pain of a cosmic broken world that we cannot fix. He will come back, and He will make it all right again. And a God who can take this world around us that we can see and make it a new place, that is a God worth worshiping. Finally, we'll consider their exodus home. We call it exodus on purpose because there's a pretty loud echo here of the exodus in the Old Testament. The exodus story is the main redemptive story of the Old Testament. So you've got Christ in the New Testament, you've got exodus in the Old Testament. Well, Herod's dead, so it's safe to return to Israel. When Joseph gets back, he learns that Archelaus is the ruler in the southern area of Judea. When Herod dies, he gives it to four sons. They call these uh, tetrarchies. There are four areas, and Archelaus is just like his dad. And so Joseph's like, I'm not going there. And so he moves back up north to Nazareth. Again, God fulfills prophecies that Jesus will be a despised and outcast Nazarene. So Joseph returns to his hometown. And in doing this, he echoes the dominant redemptive story in the Old Testament the deliverance of God's people from slavery, from bondage in Egypt. But again, this is just a dim foreshadowing that we see through all of Scripture. God beautifully connects some things that seem disconnected. I mean, this story in Matthew seems small on one level. I mean, in the Exodus, God delivers two million people from slavery, and here he delivers one family from danger. But even though it's small in number, it accomplishes the same purpose which is keeping the redemptive plan of God alive. In the Old Testament, it's all these people, and here it's one family, and yet God preserves Jesus Christ, the Son of David, Jesus Christ, the King. I mean, think about these parallels. God's people are in danger. They go to Egypt for help. There's a slaughter of children by an angry ruler. God's people, once they're in Egypt, are told to leave Egypt and go to Israel, the promised land. God, in the Old Testament, brought the Israelites out of Egypt and made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai. 
now God will bring the Messiah out of Egypt and establish a new eternal covenant with his people forever. Later, Jesus will face temptation in the wilderness like God's people had faced temptation in the wilderness in the Old Testament. But unlike them, he will pass every test with flying colors. Throughout Matthew 1 and 2, we see the sovereignty of God in fulfilling the redemption story and in preserving Jesus as the king. God guaranteed the success of redemption historically, and he continues to do so today. Now, I'm going to step out of this for a minute and just talk with us here to a particular group of people. We all are wired a little bit differently, but I want to talk to a group of people this morning, and you struggle at some level with questions like this. How could I think this and be a Christian? How could I do this and be a follower of Christ? How could I struggle with this pain internally and actually know God? And at one level, I want to say, this is not something that I can answer for you. Are you a Christian or not a Christian? That's, that's not something I can answer fully and finally. But I want, want to look at it this way. The God who went to such great lengths to preserve his salvation plan through his son, Jesus Christ, is the very one who guarantees our redemption through the blood of Jesus. His sure word that we've seen repeatedly over and over and over in Matthew 1 and 2. Jesus is going to come from Egypt, Bethlehem, and Nazareth. It sounds on the surface like all those things can't be true and God made them come to pass. The same God who preserved the line of Jesus is the one who will preserve and keep you. And particularly as we grow older, a lot of times what happens is as our body grows weak, our faith tends to weaken and our minds grow weak and we wonder how I could have done and said those things and still know Jesus. But sisters and brothers, let me tell you this. God's grace to you is not dependent upon your ability to keep yourself. God's grace to you is based solely upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so if you are someone who has turned from sin to faith in Christ, God will keep you. God's grace that saved you will lead you home. It's not based upon your confidence in it. It's based, Hebrews tells us, on the confidence of, that we can have in the work of Jesus Christ. Not in our ability to fulfill God's word, but in Jesus' fulfillment of God's word for us. And as you struggle with, an, with, with a realization that in you, you still have this struggle, this battle with sin, let it encourage you that that is the very battle that Paul described in Romans chapter 7. The good things that I want to do, I don't do those. The things that I hate, man, I run after those. And Paul describes this tension that's within each of us. What's what I love about the gospel? Because the same gospel that saves us is the same grace that leads us home. It's why at the end of all time, we will sing to Jesus, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Brothers and sisters, our unshakable faith isn't unshakable because we are unshakable. It's because it's built on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And he will deliver any who comes to him in faith. God preserves Jesus as king to save his people from their sins. Let's take a moment and respond to God's word now in repentance.
in faith through silent prayer, and then in just a moment I'll close this in prayer. Let's talk to God now. God, we thank you for your word and that you have always been faithful to it. Whether it's your word predicted in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New, or whether it's promises to your people to save all who come to you in faith. God, I thank you that our security doesn't rest on, on us, but on our sufficient Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I pray for those here who know you that are at some level struggling in their faith. God, I pray that you would comfort them with your faithfulness. And for those who don't know you, God, I pray that you would draw them to your faithfulness, and that our only hope is the shed blood of Christ in place of our sins, and that washes us white as snow. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to give you an opportunity to respond in specific ways. If there are ways that we could uh, pray with you or encourage you, we would love to do that. Uh, in just a moment, we'll sing together, Jesus paid it all. And as we do that, if, if you would like to... Uh, Obey the Lord, follow the Lord by, coming up, by becoming a part of this church through a committed church membership or following the Lord in baptism or if there's any other way that we can uh, share Christ with you, we would love to do that and or pray with you and encourage you in any way that we can. Would you please stand to your feet as we prepare to respond to uh, the word of God? We'll sing together.